Um, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome here today to the Royal College of Surgeons. And we are very pleased to be working today with the Royal College Pathologists, um, who are currently celebrating their National Pathology Week. Um, this is the last of our series of lectures this year, uh, following the theme of war, art and surgery, although we will have one more uh, next year, so if you're not already on our mailing list, do please consider joining. Um, but for now, enough of the puff, I will introduce our two speakers. Uh, first of all, we have Dr Heidi Doughty. Um, she is a, a consultant in transfusion medicine, working for both the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, and the NHS Blood and Transfusion. Blood, sorry, apologies, I can't read my handwriting. Blood and Transplant. Um, she served for 33 years as a reservist and has a range of operational experiences. Uh, our other speaker is Dr Emma Hutley, who is a consultant in clinical microbiology. Uh, she is also serving in the British Army and also working in the NHS. She's served in Iraq and Afghanistan and is currently de the Defence Consultant Advisor for Pathology. So we are very lucky indeed to have these two speakers here today. Thank you for listening. Right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so welcome to Blood and Bugs. This has been an amazing adventure with the Royal College of Pathologists, the public engagement um, department, who have ran a really successful roadshow with the uh, BBC, reaching out largely to the youngsters. And I had hoped there was going to be a group here today. And more than 30,000 youngsters have actually come through this system during the summer. So what we'd like to do is continue the theme and perhaps look a little more at some of the current and future challenges. So we're going to look at the, the impact of military pathology over the last century. So we're going to be contrasting and comparing turn of the century 1914 with 2014, but also looking forward slightly. And one of the questions is, you know, what is pathology? And we talk about the science behind the cure. And everyone thinks of us in white coats. If you look at uh, some of the recent programmes, they were wear um, four-inch stiletto heels. I really couldn't do it myself. But we are doctors. We're very much interested in the living. And Emma and I have been involved now very much with the care of our soldiers, not the direct care just the direct care, but also an advisory service working together with our technical colleagues, the biomedical scientists, and these are the people really applying this on the field. And one of the challenges is, do we bring people home or do we project medicine forward? And in particular, here we see a mobile laboratory from the First World War, but one of the things Emma's been working on is how can we miniaturise all our pathology equipment reagents, etc. Can we actually get a pathology capability in a rucksack, we call it a Bergen, and actually be able to put that forward right where the troops are? So this is one of the constant themes that we'll see. So I think what we'll do is we'll take you back to the beginning and try and explore the reality of what it was like to be in the trenches of 2014. So clearly being in the trenches, there was the constant threat of injury from warfare. But actually the real threat was, from the, uh, was invisible. It was from microbe rather than man. 
there were many, many infections that these um, soldiers could succumb to, both from the horrendous conditions uh, where there was uh, lots of soil, animal excreta, uh, lots of water, very poor hygiene. They were living in very close confines and the ability just to wash themselves or their clothes was almost impossible. However, the uh, First World War was actually a turning point uh, in some respects in terms of military medicine. Up until the First World War, the amount of deaths from disease in any military campaign had always far exceeded those deaths that had occurred as a result of trauma. The First World War changed this um, partly because of the uh, type of warfare used and the extent of that, but also because there had been a golden age of microbiology just before, where we had really started to understand the cause of some of these infections um, and, and be able to take some perhaps um, basic measures to prevent some of them. So you can see on this graph here that um, this is the First World War, and after that, rapidly the number of deaths from disease falls and deaths in warfare are generally today due to, um, to, to trauma that's sustained on the battlefield. That isn't to say that disease has gone away, it is still by far and away the, the highest uh, cause of admission to our field hospitals, um, but it doesn't cause death. However, it does cause a significant impact on uh, uh, manpower. So uh, you've heard about the uh, roadshow over the summer, uh, and we wanted to uh, engage the youngsters that came in some of the infections that may be acquired in the trenches. There were clearly many of these, but we picked three um, main infections to illustrate the risks, both from uh, your own bacteria, from uh, organisms you might acquire from the environment, and those you might get from other people. So attendees were given a sticker at the start, which look very much like these pictures here. These are gram stains, a technique that we use to identify bacteria in the laboratory back in the, 90, uh, back in the late 1800s, as well as today. So if you were given one of these top stickers with uh, round uh, blue, blue organisms, you had Staphylococcus aureus, an organism that is acquired from person to person, and also from sharing uh, common things. So if you share towels or razors, then uh, you have a risk of acquiring it. If you had a uh, blue rod with perhaps a spore on the end, this was Clostridium tetani, an organism acquired from the soil. And finally, some attendees had uh, pink uh, dots, uh, which uh, represent a, a difficult-to-grow organism called Bartonella quintana. Um, this was carried by lice uh, and caused trench fever. Um, and during the uh, roadshow, the youngsters would explore uh, these organisms, learn how they were acquired, and perhaps some of the ways that uh, in time we will come to understand the diseases and have treatments. So just to look at them in a little more detail, uh, this is Staphylococcus aureus, an organism that 30% of us carry harmlessly on our skins uh, and in our throat. And all of us, I'm sure, have had an infection at some stage due to Staph aureus, perhaps um, a paronychia, as shown here, where you have some inflammation by the nail bed, um, a spot, uh, a sty, all of those are commonly caused by Staph aureus. Uh, it can, it's also a very common cause of wound infections, as you see down here, um, and it can cause much more serious aggressive infections. It can cause pneumonia, infections of the heart, uh, and very nasty uh, bone infections. And it's a really significant uh, bug to find in, even in hospitals today. Clostridium tetani um, is an organism that lives in the soil. It doesn't like oxygen very much. It likes to have anaerobic conditions. And this organism would be pushed deep into the tissues of people who were injured, uh, maybe in warfare, but it can also happen if you 
put your garden fork through your foot or uh, sustain a significant injury while uh, doing anything related to soil. It isn't the organism itself that causes the problem, it's a toxin that the organism produces which spreads and infects the nervous system and causes rigidity and this opsithotinus. And this is a picture that's in the Royal College of Surgeons in, uh, Glasgow, in Edinburgh <coughs> demonstrating this opsithotinus. Um, this uh, was a soldier who'd been injured in warfare and who subsequently died. And I'm just going to uh, mention here that the tetanus had come to be understood a little before the First World War, um, and we were already using um, uh, some passive immunisation techniques to reduce the problems with this in the First World War. So immunity to an infection can either be um, acquired actively or passively. So if you have an infection and you recover, or if you uh, receive vaccination for it, then you, your immune system, then if it is subjected to that, uh, infection again, um, it will be able to respond um, and deal with the infection. Uh, the other way is passive uh, immunization, and this is where you get some of the uh, antibodies your immune system needs uh, from somebody, from another person, um, uh, and it gives you rapid but short term uh, ability to fight the infection. And you'll see the significance of this again later on in the talk. But this was already being um, used for uh, diphtheria and tetanus at the time of the First World War. Finally, uh, Bartonella quintana. So uh, this is an organism that is transmitted by lice. So the lice would uh, hide in the uh, clothing of the soldiers in the trenches. Uh, it would bite them and cause itching, so they would scratch the skin. And the organism is, is transmitted by the feces and the excreta of the lice. So when you were scratching your skin, you'd uh, inoculate that into, the, um, into your body and uh, cause a feverish illness, usually lasting about five days, hence the term quintana. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, in order to deal with this, uh, there, were, there was nothing that you could do uh, other than try and get rid of the lice. And it's actually the origin of the term uh, chatting, because the soldiers would sit around talking to each other and removing these lice, which they termed chats. Uh, and that's where the term chatting today comes from. So as you have seen, the threats from disease in the trenches were significant. But uh, those from trauma were to, as Heidi will detail further. Mm. So <coughs> trenches, we've already learnt a little bit about the, the conditions and the fact that they give rise to the constant threat of disease, but my interest is the immediate risk, the risk of shrapnel, the risk of direct wounding and the risk of bleeding to death, because that is still as pertinent now as it was then. So first aid here was actually really quite well organised, there were first aid posts run by the medical officers and stretcher bearers within the trench system and they had really well organised systems of being able to go in, extricate the men and, and the first aid then, they knew about direct pressure on the wound, elevation of the leg for instance, bandages, but actually it's all really, really very simple and the problem is if you lose a lot of blood then you haven't got enough circulating fluid, you're at risk of shock and there was very little in the way of fluids to treat shock. And the only thing they had was gummy fluid, which was a sort of a, a gum extracted from the acacia tree, which was held in the body a little bit longer than water. And the problem is, if you lose whole blood, what you really need is whole blood replacement. And we'd actually learnt about blood groups at the turn of the century. And here we've got Landsteiner. 
and Lance Steiner had begun to work out that not all blood was the same, that there were different blood groups, and that actually if you crossed the wrong blood into a patient, what happened was, we can see it on the tiles here, here we can see that if the wrong blood and the wrong serum get together, the cells all clump together, we call it agglutination, and you can imagine when you want to transfuse somebody, you want a fluid transfusion. You don't want clumps of cells blocking up the blood vessels. So they knew, they had the science, and one of the challenges that we have in terms of science and innovation is, is taking science from the bench actually to the battlefield, and that process of innovation is often a sort of stop-start event. And war, paradoxically, is a really powerful stimulus to innovation. And we see it time upon time. It's almost like you need war to get you all together, to take the scientific bits and pieces and make it into something useful. Blood groups. People then started exploring how do we get blood from one person to the other. And, you know, going back in history, we've seen various popes having the blood of young boys, I can't possibly comment. We had dogs' blood going into humans, it's really unadvisable. And here, what we can see is direct blood transfusion, going from one arm directly to another. This system is actually was used in Russia up until the 1950s. And by using a syringe, you can draw it out of one, clamp it or use a three-way tap and then push it. And actually, this is one of the things that Lucy and her team had mocked up during the roadshow. So this is direct blood transfusion going from one person to the other. And you say, well, where are the blood donors? <clears throat> With the greatest of respect, if you've got lots of soldiers in a field hospital where they've been evacuated to, um, your donor is the person in the bed next to you who is less severely injured. Now, I'm not sure about his volunteer status. This could be questionable. However, he was a volunteer. Ah, our colleagues from the schools have arrived. Hello, everyone. We're into the blood bit. We're talking about blood transfusion. So come take a seat. So direct blood transfusion going from one person to another. But the difficulty there is you need to have the donors or the volunteer, less injured person, next to you. And you can see that doesn't allow you to plan. It doesn't allow you to have blood ready waiting to go. What we needed was to be able to keep the blood out of the body, to be able to store it, so that when somebody needed it later, it was good to go. And so to do that, we actually need to take the blood into a bottle, keep it liquid by using what they call citrate. So citrate is a, it's a chemical a little bit like vitamin C, the sort of things that we get in oranges and lemons. And citrate binds with the calcium in our blood and actually stops the clotting process, so it keeps blood liquid. So into the bottle, into the citrate, stir with a glass rod, and then sometimes they would actually reinfuse it, put it through a piece of gauze to take out the froth and any clumps, and then put it back into the patient. This means that we've now disconnected our blood donor and our patient. This is what we call 
indirect transfusion and it allows you to start banking blood. So when we talk about blood banking, that was a concept that came from the First World War. You know, there's work going on in, in the US and we saw some of the Canadian surgeons bringing it into the war. But actually the Belgique had also started in 2014 doing the first indirect transfusions. And, and we see different countries all putting it together, sometimes in civvy streets, sometimes in the trenches. But really by the end of the war, we had Robertson writing up in The Lancet the key papers that talked about their experience of how transfusion was transforming the care of the most severely injured soldiers. And that in turn then led to the advent of the first blood bank in the UK in 1921 with Percy Oliver in London. And then from there, the different cities. So spreading across the UK, and then the next country that really went with it was Spain. And again, here we have war stimulating innovation. So the Spanish Civil War, again, led to a whole development in forward blood banks, where they were actually taking it on mules in panniers, blood, citrated, glass bottles up to the front line. So the First World War, leading on to other wars, was stimulating changes in science. And again, we see the same thing in the Second World War. And actually, what we really see then is the developments in microbiology. So let's revisit our friend, the bugs. So um, after the First World War, um, the, where we had sort of the science behind some of these infections, we, we needed um, uh, further work and investment from society as a whole to take this forward um, uh, and produce some of the solutions to these infections we'd seen. Um, and as uh, the people who attended our roadshow moved through, they learnt about some of the treatments that they could, uh, they could receive for the infections on the sticker that they had received. So. Um, by the uh, time of the Second World War, we had antibiotics uh, and we understood the importance of hygiene and hand washing uh, for things like Staph aureus. Uh, we'd already started to understand a little bit about tetanus before the First World War, but this was built on further uh, and we developed tetanus vaccination so that in the Second World War, we really didn't see uh, any tetanus because most people had been vaccinated. Uh, and also clearly the importance of uh, rapid effective surgery uh, was key. Uh, and with Bartonella Quintana, the general measures for um, hygiene and cleanliness uh, had, had been uh, to some extent instigated. Uh, and, and later on uh, uh, in the century, we developed new antibiotics which could deal with this infection. So uh, this picture uh, uh, is of uh, Alexander Fleming. He'd worked extensively during the First World War on uh, the infections that had occurred in wound infections. Uh, in wounds, um, and uh, he had a serendipitous uh, discovery one day in his laboratory where he was looking at some plates of organisms which had been contaminated uh, by moulds, and he realised that the uh, bacteria couldn't grow near the mould, and this was how we started to understand uh, and develop antibiotics. Uh, and uh, once the Second World War uh, occurred, uh, penicillin was uh, prioritised to be uh, given uh, to soldiers uh, to such an extent, and it was so precious that it would be administered to people, and then their urine would be collected so that the antibiotic could be crystallised out uh, and given to the, the next person. Uh, again, as Heidi has demonstrated, perhaps uh, we, we've come a little further uh, in, in our uh, practices today. 
Uh, but uh, antibiotics uh, were a really key development in terms of combating infections. Uh, so this uh, image, I'm sure you all recognise, is uh, Edward Jenner uh, providing uh, immunisation for smallpox. Edward Jenner was actually a student of uh, John Hunter, um, and uh, he realised that uh, those people who had had uh, cowpox uh, didn't succumb to smallpox to the same extent, and inoculated uh, this into um, uh, individuals and protected them from smallpox. And this was really the, the start of development of vaccination, uh, which has continued through history, so that today we have vaccination for many diseases, measles and mumps through to influenza. And of course today uh, the, uh, the big uh, pressure is on a search for a vaccine for Ebola. And effective hygiene is really important, and I wouldn't be a microbiologist if I didn't mention hand washing at some point during the talk. Uh, and during the roadshow, uh, this was highlighted to individuals who were able to use uh, the glow germ gel, which they would spread across their hands, uh, and then wash their hands and put them under the UV light, uh, and it would highlight to them areas where perhaps when they wash their hands, they, mi they miss it. Much like any of you who may have used a disclosing tablet for your teeth, it shows the areas where you're, where you're missing. Because good hand washing is absolutely paramount <coughs> in protecting infect against infection. So we see that in the century following the First World War, we had a, descent, a, a whole load of discovery and innovation. Uh, and this really increased our confidence, particularly with infection, that we had uh, made massive progress and that it was perhaps not going to be so much of an issue for us on the battlefield. Uh, and this led to an infamous quote by the uh, 10th Surgeon General of the, General of the United States, General William Stewart, who in 1967 said... It's time to close the book on infectious diseases and declare the war against pestilence one. I think as we will move to see, uh, this was perhaps uh, a, a lack of insight into the uh, future challenges that would evolve. Hmm. War is rarely over. It's a part of the human condition. And whereas the College of Surgeons is focusing on how war has led to innovations, um, what we're going to do now is take a little look at what's been learned over the last decade. So again, we have people in trenches living in close contact and in conditions where it can be hard, both the man and machine. And the immediate threat to life is the risk of massive bleeding, catastrophic bleeding as it's been termed here. And so there was a paradigm shift in the way that we taught first aid. And instead of ABC, airways, breathing, circulation, it then became C. ABC, catastrophic hemorrhage, major, major hemorrhage, and then ABC. And the soldiers were taught to stop the bleeding first before they then went on to do the procedures with the breathing. And how, so all first aiders should be taught to be able to administer their own first aid as well as others. So care under fire includes the use of a tourniquet to stop limb bleeding. Hemostatic dressings, that's a funny word. That means heme, blood, static, stop. So these are dressings designed to try and get the blood to clot quickly to actually stop further bleeding. And these dressings can be made out of a variety of things, but strangely enough, they're normally made out of processed shellfish. And in fact, sometimes, because this bandage has got the same stuff, they're sometimes called prawn dressings, which is a little bit strange, but soldiers are strange. So not only do we stop the clot, but then we include the pressure from the pressure bandages 
as well as bandages impregnated with this ground shellfish that stimulates the clot. That stops the bleeding. But the next thing to do now is to prevent the shock because having lost blood, either we make up with fluids, but sometimes that actually makes clotting worse. One of the things that's been really led by our surgeons both the Royal College here and military surgeons, is a better understanding of how shock itself affects our natural clotting. And if people become shocked, then they actually bleed more. And that has actually become so important that what we now do is, instead of bringing people back on stretches all the way back, what we now do is try and project the doctor, the nurse, the paramedic, together with treatment forward to the patient. And since 2007, we've actually had blood on board, <coughs> not just red cells, but also plasma, and we'll come back to that. And you can see how this has been taken up by the London Helicopter um, Emergency Medical Service just before the Olympics, no accident there as part of Olympic planning. And across the country, we see blood on board coming on. But why is it... Why is it not just red cells? Why is it plasma as well? Because this is what we're trying to do. We've now learned that transfusion for trauma needs more than red cells for oxygen. What we need to do is to rebuild the blood clot. We need to give plasma, the straw-coloured fluid that contains our clotting factors, and sometimes platelets, which is a microscopic part of blood that really does the end part of clotting. And what we're trying to do is, when the blood vessels are damaged, once they're exposed, the platelets become sticky. And the sticky platelets, together with the plasma, then create a reaction. And the reaction allows the blood to go from liquid to solid, to clot, and we get this strong fibrous network of clotting going into fibrinogen fibres together with the platelets. And so what we do is we build the clot, we provide the calcium that's sometimes missing, and we keep them warm, we get them to a surgeon. And this is something that's really very new in the last 10 years. The trouble is, red cells only last for 35 days in the fridge. Plasma's fine, it's frozen, lasts for three years in the freezer. But platelets, that tiny, tiny fragment there, if any of you are platelet donors, only last five to seven days. And if you're constantly trying to get that on aeroplanes, going from Birmingham, where I work, across to the battlefield, that is really, really difficult. So this is blood donation 2014. And if we contrast it with what we saw at the beginning, where you had direct transfusion, then you had indirect transfusion, giving whole blood. This now just takes off the bit of blood we want. And you can see it's a, a straw-coloured fluid containing the microscopic fragments called platelets. And this is using a cell separator in a process that we called apheresis. And these soldiers here are volunteer, proper volunteer donors, not injured people. And actually, often it's the doctors and nurses who are working in the hospital who are also acting as the blood donors for their patients. And sometimes I refer to this as blood, sweat and tears for obvious reasons. This combination of pre-hospital care, together with progressive resuscitation starting on the helicopter, 
The techniques used by the surgeons called damage control surgery as part of damage control resuscitation has led to this extraordinary cohort that are sometimes, sometimes described as the unexpected survivor. But actually, it's the beginning of a new battle. This is a, a quiet battle, a battle against inflammation and infection. So, as we heard, uh, there were significant advances after the First World War with antibiotics and vaccines, uh, but the developments in the recent conflict uh, with this group of, uh, of patients who uh, are really severely injured uh, and previously would never have survived have received massive amounts of blood products, uh, created a whole new situation. And the war isn't over, it's never over, uh, with humans against microbes. Uh, and they will constantly change as we produce changes and adapt to them and find new treatments, they will change to overcome them. Uh, and each conflict uh, in history has had particular organisms which have been associated with it. And for the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, these are the organisms which have been a particular problem, fungal infections, which we really never really see uh, in human beings, perhaps other than very, very severely immunosuppressed patients uh, who've had uh, chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants for cancer. Um, and what happened was in 2008, we found a group of patients who'd all been very, very severely injured by improvised explosive devices in what we call the green zone, and that's pictured in this, uh, in this photo here. Uh, in Afghanistan, the area along the Helmand River, full of lush vegetation, where there's farming, lots of, uh, of, uh, of animals, uh, uh, and so soil full of all sorts of, uh, of, of, of things. And these people would be uh, blown up there and have this uh, soil and dirt uh, blown really deep inside their tissues. And because of the fantastic care that they were given, uh, they would survive these. And the key principle of war surgery is that you debride all of this dirty stuff and get back to clean tissue and prevent infection. Uh, but often the surgeons were unable to achieve that in these individuals because of uh, their physiological state, their ability to withstand the surgery because they were so badly injured. Meant we often had to stop and then after a couple of days go back when the, when the patient was able to tolerate it. And these individuals would be 10 days after the injury still having mud and stuff taken out of the, the wounds that were really very, very deep inside the body. Uh, and we had to respond to this uh, with, with new strategies to try um, and prevent these, in, these infections. Uh, but it, this is a, a new bug that has evolved. Uh, the bacteria were dealt with by antibiotics, uh, and this really allowed this to, these infections to come to the fore. So speaking of the bacteria, clearly they're not a problem because we have broad-spectrum antibiotics and we can uh, treat all of those, but this is not the case. And what the uh, people who attended the roadshow were able to do uh, was look at, uh, at the antibiotics that you can use for infection. So this here is how we uh, look for antibiotic sensitivity within the laboratory. We have these paper discs impregnated with a small concentration of uh, the antibiotic, which we put on an agar plate, which is covered in a lawn of the organism. We put it in the incubator overnight, and the bacteria grows. So when Fleming did this, would have, if Fleming had done this after, uh, uh, you know, when he was discovering penicillin, this plate would probably have had no bacterial growth at all. It would have, it would have just been empty because the bacteria wouldn't have been able to grow. Now in the laboratory, we increasingly see this, where the bacteria can go right up to these paper discs, which means the antibiotic is completely ineffective. 
Now, this is Staphylococcus aureus, and I'm sure you're all familiar with MRSA from the, uh, the media and the significance of that infection. So this is here. This is uh, flucloxacillin, the, the antibiotic we use first line for these skin and soft tissue infections, and the organism is resistant to it. Um, uh, and this, you know, obviously causes us uh, significant problems. And it's not just the skin organisms that are, causing, that are uh, uh, developing this antibiotic resistance. Uh, the gram-negative organisms, the ones that live in our gut, so you have 10 uh, times more bacteria in your body than you have human cells. Uh, and many of these are in your gut. Very, very important for having a normal, healthy life. Uh, but these bacteria, when they get into the wrong place, perhaps into your urine, or if you have an abdominal infection, uh, can, cause in, can cause infection. Uh, and these are increasingly resistant to antibiotics. To such an extent that uh, Dame Sally Davis, the Chief Medical Officer of, uh, of the UK, has championed the cause of antibiotic resistance uh, and, and has achieved the, the buy-in from our senior politicians. And this is the Prime Minister talking about antibiotic resistance. And it's actually now <coughs> on the UK's national risk register uh, alongside terrorism as a risk. Because antibiotics underpin modern medicine. If you have a routine operation, if you need chemotherapy, antibiotics are crucial. And it is a reality today that there are infections for which we do not have effective antibiotics. Uh, and we have less and less antibiotics being developed. Um, and so really the war is, is not won with respect to antibiotics and bacteria. Uh, finally, infection prevention control. We learned about the importance of personal hygiene uh, and hygiene perhaps in the camps. We've learned some hard lessons in the last 10 years in terms of our hospital infection control policies. We're set up to save lives, to bring these soldiers um, to home alive. Uh, and these are some of the headlines that occurred in 2007 and 8, where uh, we imported a very uh, resistant bacteria back into the UK hospitals, which had been acquired uh, by our soldiers while serving in the Middle East. This is partly because, obviously, we don't just treat our own soldiers. We treat uh, the, those soldiers on the, the other side and also the local nationals. And if you have a hospital of severely injured patients uh, in, in field conditions, uh, it is more difficult than in the UK to achieve high standards of infection control. But we've really learned from this. We now deploy infection control nurses into every hospital uh, and pay particular attention to our healthcare system infection prevention control rather than just that of the individual and the environment they live in. So back to the future now. We've uh, recently uh, finished our operations in Helmand. Uh, in Afghanistan. And just as we finished uh, in the First World War, uh, we uh, Spanish flu uh, occurred, which was a, a pandemic of influenza which killed more people than, uh, than were killed as a result of the whole of the First World War. Um, and this is a picture of uh, an American military facility set up to deal with influenza patients. We have, you may be aware from the, uh, the news, have recently finished in Afghanistan, and the military has been straight out of that into the, the current uh, global uh, outbreak of Ebola. And this here is a picture of our um, training facility up uh, in York, which we've developed, uh, and some of our military personnel uh, training uh, to go and work in our Ebola treatment facility, which will open in Sierra Leone this week. Um, and this uh, Ebola really brings us full circle in this talk with respect to blood and bugs. So Ebola clearly requires good infection prevention control and hygiene measures. We desperately need to find a vaccine for it. Uh, we need new diagnostics so that we can diagnose patients uh, near to them quickly. 
And most importantly, we need treatments. So there are a few experimental ones, such as the ZMAP you may have heard about. But the only current possible treatment is uh, from passive immunization. So obtaining a blood transfusion, blood donation from an individual who survived Ebola and giving that to a sufferer. And, as that, and so that brings blood and bucks back together, working very closely in the current situation. That's Heidi will conclude. So over the last few weeks, um, I think it's no secret that we've been working with the, the nurse that came back from Sierra Leone, and he's been giving his plasma through the sort of machine that I showed you there, an apheresis machine, and his plasma, which contains the antibodies to Ebola, has now been deep frozen, has been made available to other people with the disease, but clearly, we need to scale this up. We need a combination of treatments, vaccines, diagnostics, as well as more plasma for Ebola. So I hope that we've given you just a tiny taster of how military pathology contributes not just to military medicine, but I hope leaves a, a legacy to wider healthcare. Um, we are very much partners in care, the Royal Colleges together, pathologists and the surgeons continue to work closely and I'd like to thank you all very much for spending this lunchtime with us today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we do have uh, some time for questions, if you have any that you'd like to direct to our speakers today. Okay, I think, yeah. Go. Now you have um, some donated plasma mm -hmm. from this nurse. Um, can you um, develop more from it as you, uh, with stem cell research and so on, you develop cells? Or does it have to be um, donated so you're, abs you're absolutely right. What we need to do is to be able to use monoclonal antibody technology in order to be able to industrialise and scale up. And that's one of the challenges with taking stuff from a bench to the bedside is that it's more than just science. It's the industrial complex that allows us to then bring this. But you're probably aware that to develop drugs, to develop new vaccinations ordinarily would take at least five years. We do not have five years for Ebola. So at the moment, the WHO is really <coughs> putting together consortia from all sorts of countries. And as we speak, there are two groups working on convalescent plasma. Certainly the blood service together with Public Health England is working on the screening and um, antibody tests where they can quantify it, but there are also groups working on the monoclonals. So sadly, it won't be for at least for a few months, and I think it will be broadcast on the news as soon as there is anything, because it's such an important global health issue. What an interesting question. I think that's a bug question. 
Yeah, so, well, malaria is, obviously there isn't at present a vaccine uh, for it, although, again, it's a disease where there's a lot of effort going in to try and find one. Um, and malaria prophylaxis is obviously key, taking the right uh, anti-malarial for the region of the world that you're going to. Although, actually, uh, that's just one part of it, and taking the anti-malarial doesn't protect you. You need to uh, employ the whole host of measures to avoid bites and things. I think you're right, you know, vaccination prevention is always better than cure and uh, if I'm going to go anywhere I will always have all my vaccinations and take my anti-malarials but um, I think in the UK it's, uh, it's very difficult for us to make that um, compulsory and uh, it's a way that we quite uh, differ quite significantly within the military in the UK compared to the US so our, our vaccinations are all voluntary, we don't make our soldiers have anything whereas in the US you have to have it else you're, you're out so um, I think if you get your vaccinations and take your anti-malarials, you're, uh, you're very sensible, and I, I, I wish everybody did that. It's, I mean, if you think about the basis of English law, people have the right to make decisions themselves, whether it's about organ transplantation, opt-in, opt-out. So even when it comes to the annual flu vaccination, you know, we still need to use public health messaging to say that not just doctors and nurses, but anyone who's public facing, actually you benefit the whole community by having your vaccination, but we have to leave it as a, a discretionary measure. What, what do you think? So it was really a false. So what do other people think? Do you lot think people should have compulsory injections if they're travelling abroad? Can we have hands up for yes? Who thinks we should actually protect? And who thinks no, that it should be up to people to make their own mind? There you go. That's quite interesting. So we've got a younger generation, an older generation with those two views about public health. And that's why it's quite important to have these sort of discussions. Any? It is. Absolutely. Mm. Now, I've got a feeling the gentleman was here first. Oh, I beg your pardon. I've lived abroad and I've, I've deliberately had these vaccinations and taken care about malaria and things like that. But when you think about it, the National Health Service doesn't want a big bill of people being sick because they haven't taken the course and so it could be pushed that way. Mm. Of course, and, um, oh, if the keys are all. My question is completely different about haemophilia and can blood transfusions be made between haemophilia? Anyway. Are you asking whether haemophilia can donate blood? Yes, donate or receive. To treat haemophilia, we use a fraction of plasma, where the plasma has been treated with special detergent-type processes to make it safe but also to distill the factor eight. And you need to have lots and lots of blood donations to treat that haemophiliac. So we do treat haemophiliacs with sometimes 
factor eight from blood, but more often these days, as my colleagues pointed out, it is made using modern technology, what we call recombinant technology. But they cannot give blood. They can't. The haemophiliacs can't give it. Pneumonia vaccine, pneumonia vaccine exists and it's not used widely, so why not? Mm, you were asking so me. Thousand people die from pneumonia every year. Yeah. Um, okay, so pneumonia is quite uh, difficult. It's caused by the, the pneumonia vaccine is uh, for a specific cause of pneumonia, which is Streptococcus pneumoniae, uh, and that's a bacteria that has uh, many different forms. And so there are actually two current vaccines uh, which uh, uh, have a combination of, uh, of different um, uh, uh, provide um, protection for a different combination of the uh, streptomoniae organisms. Um, in the UK, these issues are always um, subject to risk-benefit cost analysis, um, and we know that Streptococcus pneumoniae uh, causes more severe infection in uh, those who are older. So hence the reason for AVO 65 in, uh, in young people um, uh, and people who perhaps have chronic medical conditions, particularly chronic chest infections. And so within the UK, uh, the decision has been to, um, to uh, immunise those patients who are particularly at, at risk from it to prevent them from having the serious consequence of the infection. Um, you know, the, the organism is around uh, and it, some of us carry it harmlessly anyway, but clearly uh, reducing infections and then the ability to spread, you would hope there would be some uh, community effect from that as well. But that's why it, it's not compulsory. And even if you have had the uh, immunization, it's still possible to have uh, Streptococcus pneumoniae infection from a different strain of the same bacteria that's not included in that that vaccine. It's, it's similar to influenza, you know, you have to have your flu injection every single year and that's because the influenza virus changes uh, slightly from, from year to year and so we have to try and predict uh, a year in advance what's going to be the serious infection the following year, produce the vaccine over the summer ready for the, the autumn um, in the, up in the northern hemisphere in the autumn for us to give the uh, immunization. So um, for some organisms, uh, if you, you can provide a, a vaccine which, which will cover uh, all of that organism for others, it, it's more strain specific depending on the particular uh, variety of that organism. I does hope that makes sense. I can say, does, was there a particular angle to your question? Was there? No, it's just uh, so many people die in the UK from pneumonia. Yes. But it doesn't cover all sorts of pneumonia, so we do use it selectively. But you're right, we need to encourage people to have it if they're going to benefit from it. Any questions from the back? Yes, sir. So with um, sort of tropical, formerly tropical climates moving further north, yeah. are there any uh, precautions in place to prevent disease vectors moving towards Europe? Really interesting question, isn't it? Okay, so we're talking about disease vectors changing the areas in which they live because of climate change. Now, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question because it's a significant um, issue. So uh, there are diseases that we've traditionally associated with trop the tropics, so uh, dengue virus, chikungunya, uh, some viral infections that really had to go to a nice tropical country uh, to, to, to get that. Uh, we've had those uh, infections in Europe, they've been in Italy, uh, uh, Spain and even France and it's only a matter of time before you could potentially get that vector in the, in the UK. Um, so it is something that is being con continually monitored um, uh, uh, and, and looked at. And you have to remember that malaria used to uh, occur in, in Europe and we kind of uh, eradicated it by using all the uh, effective uh, measures that, that we had uh, available. Um, and what we need to do really with any infection is get ahead of the curve. So uh, much like the Ebola we hear on the news all the time that, we're, that, that, that it's out of control. You know, we're not up on the curve to where we need to be. Um, uh, and what we have to be better at is, is preventing things both by using vaccination but also by surveillance so that as soon as the first <coughs> infection occurs uh, we can start instigating appropriate measures to prevent it but um, it's a significant threat for, for the future. Mm. Have you heard of any things or had any ideas yourself about how to prevent it? Well I suppose it's a case of um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we do in blood transfusion, we always take a travel history. And every six months, we're having to update the travel history to take into account exactly what you've asked. So we now ask about travel in Italy because of some of the things. So that would prevent transmission through blood. But I think you're right. We need to not only understand the disease, but what carries the disease. And that's where you can all have interesting jobs in pathology and insect control later. Mm. Um, what is the climate change for yes. the world encourages bacteria? Probably they like it much better than we do. Mm. I think that's his point, yes. How are we doing? Oh, we've got time for a few more questions. Yes? I'm a blood donor, so I, I have these questions, and it is very interesting mm. how they change. That's a really interesting question. So you're referring to the fact that sometimes we can be incubating a yeah. disease without showing any symptoms. And this is a big issue about Ebola. If you remember the story about the nurse who was asked to stay in quarantine for 21 days until she'd finished that period before coming out and she's been out and about on her bicycle. Um, we don't. So we ask you, are you well today? Have you been in contact with anyone that's ill? And then we have to ask a little bit about occupation and travel. But then we have to take your word for it. But do you recall what advice you're given if you're ill after donation? Can you remember? Yes. You're, you're meant to be given <coughs> a reminder or a little slip of paper that says, if you're ill within the next two weeks, please tell us. And that's to recognise exactly what you're talking about, that you might be incubating something that hasn't yet made you ill, but might make somebody else ill. And one of the jobs that the consultants do, as soon as somebody rings in to say, actually, I've come out in a rash, and I gave blood five days ago, we then go through what's called a recall. 
And that's why every single bag of blood that's given has a separate barcode. And we not only trace it going to the hospital, we can track that for 30 years. And that's one of the consequences of variant CJD that became a, a con health concern a few years ago, less now, but law now requires us to track that unit of blood for 30 years. Mm. Now, I had a friend who had a very, very successful major heart surgery about 30 years ago, but was given a blood transfusion. And in giving the transfusion, obviously unknown to the uh, professionals, was given hepatitis C. Yes. Um, so presumably, um, with your, I mean, it's discovered now because of she was virtually into needing a, a liver transplant. Yes. Um, but she has taken part in research, and it's had a, a massive uh, impact yeah. um, for her and hopefully for others. But presumably, with this 30-year tracing, you, I mean, you can't know everything. So in mm. 10 years' time, there'll be something that nobody's thought of today. That's right. But for 30 years. The whole point of traceability is you know from which vein to which vein the blood has gone in order to do that sort of recall because as you say the battle against bugs is constantly evolving and one way is to test but another way is to use techniques which we call pathogen inactivation to try and blast in particular plasma with either chemicals or things like ultraviolet light to try and destroy even the bacteria and viruses that we don't know about. So that balance in transfusion between the good <coughs> and the bad is always under discussion and we have a lot of steering group oversight to try and get that balance. Right, um, well I, I think I'll call it quits on questions. Thank you everyone for your questions. Um, I'd like to thank our two speakers, Dr. Heidi Doughty and uh, Dr. Emma Hutley, uh, for their excellent presentation today. I do hope that you'll enjoy it, and if you'd like to show your appreciation one more time. Um, as ever with these events, uh, on your seats you have our evaluation form. This time it's also an evaluation form for the Royal College of Pathologists. Uh, so we'd very much appreciate it if you could fill it out and hand it back to my colleague Lucy, who's wearing a green top at the back on your way out. Um, for those of you who are regular attendees, um, that's pretty much it for War Art and Surgery this year, except we do have a big conference, um, which is taking place on the 14th and 15th of November, where we're going to be evaluating 250 years of military medicine, so all the way from John Hunter's time in the 18th century through to current procedures in Afghanistan and beyond. So, so if you've really had your appetite whetted, do look on our website for more information about that. Um, and my colleagues in the library uh, would like to tell you that there are some examples of um, things that they've taken from the library and archives related to today's talk. So on your way out, if you do pop into the library, which is just on the left of the museum exit, and um, see the objects that they've laid out there. Thank you very much for coming today.